Newsflash, circa 1914, a very cosmopolitan time for us all. Work begins on the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., while Babe Ruth plays his first professional baseball game. Four-year-old Charlotte Pierstoff is mailed by train to her grandparents 73 miles away. How is this okay even in 1914? Henry Ford announces an audacious $5 per day minimum wage for workers building his Model T automobile. Shocking. The war begins in Europe this year. Politicians assure us if you let us have just this one last war, we promise there won't be any more. Bystanders are skeptical. President Woodrow Wilson says America will remain neutral. Again, bystanders remain skeptical. Scientists are certain the universe has been around for all eternity. There is no beginning point to the universe, and Darwin's theory has shown us conclusively that there is a way to explain how we got here without God. All of these things are settled science and true. Certainly 1915 will bring about no important changes whatsoever. Welcome to this week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. I'm your host, Ron Campbell, and this week, as with every week, I want to remind you of the most important truth in the entire universe. God loves you. Speaking of the universe, last week we started asking the question, well, how old is the universe? And this week we're going to reach a jumping off point where we start looking at that question, starting ironically in the year 1915, which seems like a very odd place to start, but it'll make sense here in just a minute. Now, let's set the stage a little bit for where we are about 1914. At this point, most scientists believe that the universe is eternal, which is a bit ironic because a lot of the same people who have real trouble with the idea that God could have lived for forever have no problem whatsoever with the idea that the universe could be uncaused in existence for forever. But that's a topic we'll talk about later on down the road. But suffice to say, in 1914, most scientists believe that the universe has existed for all eternity. And from a naturalistic perspective, that's a very appealing option. If, if the universe has been around for forever, then there's no reason to talk about any messy creators bringing things into existence or things like that. It's a very easy question that we simply don't look at because we don't want to know the answer to it. And so in 1914, this is considered settled science by a great many people. But things are starting to change. There's a great many astronomers and other scientists who begin making some very interesting discoveries as it relates to light and the redshift in light as, as light is arriving here on Earth. And those discoveries are going to reach kind of a critical point over the next few decades when in 1915, Albert Einstein releases his general theory of relativity. I think a lot of us have heard of Einstein's theory of relativity. It's just a lot of us don't know a great deal about it. There are going to be a couple of critical discoveries that come out of Einstein's theory that are going to play a huge role in helping us to determine that the universe actually had a beginning point. So we're going to piece all of that together this week as we go forward. Some of the critical components that we're going to look at coming out of Einstein's theory, number one is obviously going to be Einstein's descriptions of gravity and what we understand about gravity. You know, prior to Albert Einstein, it would really be, I think, correct to say that it was Isaac Newton's theory on gravity and, and how that worked in celestial mechanics and things like that that was really the driving force in science in 1914. 
And so Einstein's theory is going to help us much better understand what we're looking at when it comes to this idea of gravity and, and large objects and things like that. We're also going to understand a little bit better this idea of space and time and matter and looking at them all as, as equal components in some ways, you might say, as we look at the makeup of the universe around us. You know, when we, we really start breaking those components down, looking at space as one component, time as another, and matter as another, you've heard me mention before, all of these things have come into existence at the moment the universe was created. It's something that we're going to look at in the episodes to come a great deal. But time, space, and matter all come into existence at the moment of what we're ultimately going to refer to as the Big Bang down the road. The question is going to be how these things relate to each other, and Einstein's general theory of relativity is going to help us to understand that relationship between these things better. If you're a Star Trek fan and you grew up during the 90s, you're going to know the term space-time continuum. I think it was like in every season of Star Trek throughout those years, they beat it into our heads. That space-time continuum idea is going to become directly involved in what we're looking at as we go back to that original starting point of the universe. We start to understand better this idea of large objects, lots of gravity, pulling things into them and the effects that that's going to have. Unwittingly, I think, as Einstein starts putting all of this together, his theories start leading in a direction that he doesn't anticipate. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. Let's assume that you've got a bed sitting in front of you, and on that bed you place 10 tennis balls. Now, the surface of the bed represents time and space. And so we have the time-space continuum as the top of the mattress. If we set the 10 tennis balls in a circle on the mattress, what are they going to do? Well, the answer is not much. Tennis balls are lightweight. They're tiny. They don't have a lot of weight attached to them. And if we assume that their size and their weight represents the gravitational pull that a, a celestial body might have, floating out in the, in the solar system, they're not going to have much effect on anything. There's going to be they're gonna have a little... But generally speaking, it's not going to be that noticeable. It's not going to be much. But if we introduce into the equation a very heavy, large celestial object, let's say a bowling ball, and we drop that bowling ball into the midst of the tennis balls, what's going to happen? Well, the impact that it's going to have is going to be enormous, and, and it's going to alter things very quickly. It's immediately going to sink down on the bed, and that would be a good representation of a large object, something with a lot of gravitational pull, actually bending time and space a little bit around it. So if you imagine that bowling ball sitting on the bed, and the bed bending in around it a little bit, that's going to be what happens to time and space. Einstein's theory calls this out, and Arthur Eddington, another scientist, will confirm this in 1919. As we look at this, though, the other impact that it's going to have, as that starts to happen, if we take the weight of the bowling ball and the effect that it's having and use that in place of gravity, the tennis balls are all going to start rolling into the bowling ball. And what we're going to see is our little solar system, our little tiny example of a universe, is going to collapse in on itself. And that bowling ball is going to have rather devastating impacts to the universe around it. That's going to be important as we go forward because our universe is filled with a lot more dangerous things than just bowling balls. The ultimate example that we can think of in this case would be a black hole, which literally is so massive and dense that it sucks everything. Even light can't escape it. And once it gets within its grasp, it sucks everything in on itself. This is going to be problematic as we start to look at the, effect, at the ideas that come out of Einstein's theory. 
Very quickly, Einstein himself even comes to this same conclusion. So Einstein proposes a solution to this problem. You see, if you take Einstein's theory to its natural conclusion, the universe should either be expanding or collapsing in on itself. It shouldn't be just sitting there. But Einstein proposes a way to fix that, something he calls the cosmological constant. See, so if you go back to my bowling ball example, and we have the 10 tennis balls sitting there, and you dropped a bowling ball into the middle, and it didn't do anything. Well, what would you think about that? Number one, you'd think, my goodness, this guy's mattress is ridiculous. It's like a piece of wood, which you would be correct. But the other thing you're going to think is something is wrong. If I drop a bowling ball on a bed and nothing happens, something is pushing back out against the bowling ball. Something is offsetting the weight of the bowling ball, the gravitational pull that should be pulling everything in. If that's not happening, something that I can't see is pushing back out. That's going to be the cosmological constant. Einstein because he doesn't like the idea of the universe contracting or expanding, sets the cosmological constant at exactly the, the exact setting that it needs to be so that the universe is static. It's neither expanding nor is it contracting. It's exactly perfect so that the universe has been around for all eternity. And if it's been around for all eternity, well, we don't have any of these messy questions about a creator. The problem is some other scientists out there really start working on Einstein's theory and start bringing in other observations that are going to upset the apple cart, you might say. Now, in 1922, Alexander Friedman is going to be the first scientist to really push back on Einstein's idea of a static universe that's been around for forever and is neither expanding nor contracting. And Einstein's not having any of it. And that holds for a little while longer. But in 1927, George Lemaitre, a, a Belgian astronomer and Catholic priest of all things, really delivers the death blow to Einstein's idea of a static universe. Lemaitre goes out and he brings in Edwin Hubble's observations of the red shift in light coming in from distant stars, and he combines that with Einstein's general theory of relativity. And what Hubble is able to determine is that the universe is expanding. Now, Hubble proposes this in 1927. It won't be until 1931 that Einstein finally agrees and admits that the conclusion is inescapable. The universe is, in fact, expanding. So let's talk for a minute about why this is so problematic. You see, unless the universe is perfectly balanced so that it's been around for forever, if it's, expand if it's been expanding for forever... Well, that's problematic, because when we look up into the night sky, what do we see? We see stars from distant galaxies. We see an enormous universe all around us. The problem is, if the universe has been expanding for forever, and it's been around for all eternity, those stars would be scattered off so far away and so many miles, even with how long it takes light to get here, they'd be gone. We would be in a, we'd look up and see a black sky with nothing out there except the light from our own moon and our sun. Ultimately speaking, if the universe expands for forever, everything gets so distant and separates so far from itself, we'd never see anything in the night sky. Clearly, that's not the case. The other problem is that the universe is contracting in on itself. Well, that's ultimately going to be a problem because if the universe has been collapsing and contracting, it doesn't take long to figure out if an object is doing this, eventually it's all going to collapse into nothing or it's all going to run into itself and that's going to get messy in a hurry. Clearly, neither one of those two has happened. 
So what do you do with this piece of information? The conclusions that Lemaitre reaches that Einstein ultimately ends up agreeing with show that the universe is expanding. But if you hit the rewind button on that and you send the universe backward, suddenly you come to a disturbing conclusion. Everything again collapses down to a beginning point. And a beginning point is going to be highly problematic if you're a naturalist. If you're betting on that the universe has been around for forever, and suddenly you realize that it hasn't, that there is a definite beginning point to the universe, that raises all sorts of thorny theological and cosmological issues that come along with it. The idea of the Big Bang, that's a, that's a relatively recent discussion that has come out of all of this and lots of other things that we'll talk about as we go forward. But this idea of an absolute beginning point to the universe, when you hit the rewind button on Einstein's theory, and the fact that we know that the universe is expanding, you come back to that initial point, something that we're ultimately going to refer to as a singularity, as the singularity. And we'll talk down the road about what the singularity is. So you may look at this and say, okay, fine, so why is this important? Two reasons. Number one, this begins our journey. We're going to begin back at that starting point where the universe has collapsed all the way down to, well, nothing. And, and we're going to get back to that starting point of where the universe actually begins. That's our beginning point. But we have to start here at 1915 before we can go back to that beginning point. And that brings up the second point. And this is going to be critically important in all of this. It takes 16 years from the time that Einstein proposes his general theory of relativity until in 1931 he's going to be willing to admit that, yes, clearly the universe is expanding. And the reason why is not scientific problems. Yes, there were some discoveries that had to be made along the way. No question, that's true. But Einstein fought tooth and nail against those discoveries, against those conclusions being reached, is a better way of saying it. Why? Why is that? And I love this quote from Arthur Eddington. Eddington is going to sum this up for us very well. And remember, Eddington is one of the ones who proves Einstein's theory in 1919 that Einstein's general theory of relativity is correct. Eddington notes, philosophically, the notion of a beginning point to the present order of nature is repugnant. Why? Because this deals a death blow to naturalism. If there is a beginning point to the universe, this raises all sorts of scientific and theological issues that we're suddenly going to have to address. And Einstein did not want to go there. The idea of an eternal universe from a naturalistic perspective is much more preferable to having to explain how the universe came into existence. Either way, we should want to know how the universe came into existence. The idea that the universe has been around for forever doesn't make any sense on its own. The universe is not a necessary item. It's not that the universe has to come into existence or else. The universe doesn't have to come into existence. The fact that it is in existence, well, we're going to see later, it's a contingent item. It doesn't have to be that way. But the fact that the universe has come into existence, that's going to cause a lot of philosophical problems. And what we're going to see as we take this journey is not really a difference in terms of the question of the science. And this is what I want to stress to everybody as we go forward. It's not a question of the science in a lot of these cases that we're going to be looking at. It's a question of the philosophical conclusions that we reach when we look at the science. In no way, shape, or form am I ever going to be smarter than Stephen Hawking when it comes to these issues that we're going to be looking at related to the Big Bang and quantum mechanics 
And oh my goodness, his understanding of these things was just incredibly impressive. The same is true of Albert Einstein. But these scientists, while incredibly brilliant people, make some really highly questionable philosophical conclusions based on the science that they've helped to uncover. So their, their credentials as scientists is unquestioned. Their credentials as philosophers is going to be shaky. And that's what we're going to run into in all of this. So as you look at this, I don't want you getting caught up in this idea of saying, well, this guy's an accountant. He has no business talking about science. This is true. I will never be smarter than Stephen Hawking when it comes to certain issues. But it doesn't mean as a philosopher that Stephen Hawking is the person that you want to go to either when you're trying to understand what all these scientific conclusions that he reached means. And you're going to see that as we go forward. It's important to look at this because there is this idea that this is settled science and anybody who questions it, well, they've got to just be crazy. Nobody would ever question the science behind these things. Remember, this is the danger of putting science into the third person status. We're not questioning the science in most cases. What we're questioning are the philosophical conclusions that some scientists reach. And that's a lot of the time what we're going to be looking at. We're going to hit the universal rewind button, thanks to Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity. And in the weeks to come, we're going to dismantle the philosophy behind the beginning point of the universe, something that you are going to be amazed how much cheating there is that goes on around this idea. The idea of nothing is a topic. We're going to spend a whole episode talking about nothing. And it's amazing how much people are willing to cheat when it comes to the question of nothing. We will save that for future weeks. We're going to stop right there this week. I want to thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. As always, you can reach us at our website at prooftograce.com. And if you've got questions, please reach out at prooftograce at yahoo.com. You can find us out on iTunes and Spotify if you're looking for our podcast. You can also find us here on our YouTube channel. I'd love it if you would hit that like button and that subscribe button. And I can't wait to see you next time. Just a brief footnote to this week's episode. I think it's important to have some good source material to a lot of the things you talk about, when we're, especially when we're online. There's a lot of half-truths and stuff like that on the internet. And I want to make sure to give good source documentation as we're going forward. A couple of really excellent books, if you want to start getting into some of this material on your own. A Fortunate Universe by Lewis and Barnes. A uh, Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos. The Return of the God Hypothesis by Dr. Stephen Meyer, and Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. All three of them good books. I'd probably recommend A Fortunate Universe as a good jumping off point for your studies. It's a really good introduction to some of this material, and the authors do an amazing job of breaking this information down. I will put uh, information on their, uh, on their books into the notes on the podcast. But I would strongly recommend jump out there and do some reading. Things like quantum mechanics and Einstein's general theory of relativity, there are good resources out there to help break these things down, and it's always good to be well-studied on this type of information. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.